This is Steel's Real Life, the podcast about real outdoor people with your host, Joe Thomas. Real Life with Joe Thomas is presented by Steel, maker of a full line of gasoline and battery handheld outdoor power equipment. Find yours at SteelUSA.com. This is Steel's Real Life. I'm your host, Joe Thomas, along with my good buddy, famous outdoor producer, and a hero in his own mind. That's you, Jim Kramer. How are you, Jimmy? It's uh it's great to be famous. Have you uh have you determined <laughs> you know, we determined some of the places that Steel's real life are trending in the the globe. Still still super hot in Sweden. Yeah, Sweden. Super hot they, in Sweden. They love us. But have you just have you determined if you're trending anywhere? Um, I'm not on the Twitter. So that's the only way you can really tell who's trending. So I I just assume I am. Most yeah. of the time, you just fly under the I'm radar. Not on, don't yeah, you? yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't need to get involved in that. Well, I've got enough going on. Well, I can tell you right now, we got a guy today. Our guest is. I, I love this guy. I I love watching his show. I like everything about him. He's awesome. He is. And he is. He, he's just a real dude. He came up the right way. He's got a huge following on his TV show. Bigger, as bigger than me. Oh wait, he's trending way more than you are. <laughs> But uh, uh, Cody Robbins, what what a talent, what a guy, a hardworking guy, has a great show with his wife, Kelsey, on Outdoor Channel, lived to hunt with Cody and Kelsey. They have a great family. I mean, just you can't say enough about this guy, but I've been really looking forward to hearing his story and, and to find out where he comes from. And uh, we're going to get to do that right now. Hey, Cody, how are you today, buddy? I'm fantastic, Joe. I'm so excited to be here too, brother. Well, you know what? That's going to change in a few minutes because you're going to have to talk to Jim Cramer a little bit. And, and you know, I don't know what kind of expectations you had about this steel real life thing, but yeah. there is that Jim guy, you know, and he's kind of full of himself. I'm but, the surprise. Uh, I'm the I, I'm the element of surprise that sneaks in and, and really tries to mess all this up. But, man, thank you so much for joining us. Joe and I have both been looking forward to this for a long time, and uh, I'm excited to hear your story. Cody, I followed your show for a long time. I followed your career you know both of us have this tremendous passion for hunting big game i've even yeah i've, I've even creeped you on instagram a little bit i gotta admit you know you when a guy when a guy's shooting all these giant animals his wife shoots giant his i, I don't know the whole you, family yeah the whole family yeah, yeah literally but tell me a little bit about like what it was like to grow up i mean take me way back when you're this this young kid in canada i think saskatchewan Growing up, what was it like? Well, for starters, this might be hard to believe, but I was an animal lover that was dead against hunting until I was about 12 years old. And my, my best friend that I grew up with, the guy, I went and spent every weekend at his house. We had sleepovers. I was either at his house or he was at my house. I was this animal lover, wanted to save every animal out there. And his family was a hunting and trapping family. His dad, he, he made his living trapping coyotes and foxes. And they got all of their meat or, you know, provided for their family with wild game all year long. And I was dead against what he did. And they hung, you know, white-tailed bucks on the wall in their basement. And I just couldn't get over how someone could do that. And it's funny. I, I was in a, a, um, in a hockey tournament when I was 11 years old. And it was a two-day tournament. And on Saturday, we did our games. And I was all excited to get back out there and play two more games on Sunday. And my dad said visiting with other friends in the lobby of the skating rink before we left that night. He's like, oh, 
yeah, say goodbye to your buddies. You're not going to be here tomorrow because I enrolled you in a firearm safety class. And I was so ticked off. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a passionate hockey player. And I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. There's no way in hell I'm going to miss hockey to go to a firearm safety class. And I actually went to this firearm safety class. My dad made me go because we grew up on a ranch. And there was always a 30-30 around or a 22 for shooting badgers or, you know, a sick cow or a really sick horse. And he said, as long as we have these guns in the house, you need to know how to use them and be safe with them. So I was pissed right off. But I, I went to this firearm safety course, and they also taught you about hunting there. They taught you about different species, and it really triggered something. And I went back to my best friend Shane and his family after this firearm safety course, and I asked if they would take me hunting. And so his father, Randy, took me hunting. Uh, I shot a whitetail button buck my very first year. And I absolutely fell in love with the sport of hunting and just being out there. And it, like, I can't imagine if I didn't take that course and didn't fall in love with hunting because it's changed my life. I feel like I live the greatest life on earth now. Isn't that in- incredible? That is so incredible. And I, I, I think back, your dad forced you to take a hunter safety course. And my dad, I had to beg, <laughs> literally beg when I was 10 years old and plead my for, with my dad to take me to a firearm safety class. And and once I had it, then then they, they let me start to, to shoot some competition, small bore and stuff. And it's funny how something like that can can change your life and, you know, and impact it forever, isn't it? It, it? it absolutely does. And it taught me something, Joe. I, you know, I've everyone comes to me at trade shows and um ask about our daughters we have two daughters berkeley is seven and bowie is three and everyone comes up and says oh man i bet you can't wait till she becomes a hunter and you're taking her hunting and the one thing that i think about when they say that is, uh, yeah i'd be thrilled if they become hunters but i remember back when i was that age you know at, or when i went to that course and i wanted to get into hunting i wanted to hunt so bad it wasn't my parents thing my parents didn't hunt had no hunting background. My grandparents didn't hunt. Nobody in the Robbins family had ever hunted, but it was something I desperately wanted to do. And it reminds me of your story saying that you had to convince your parents to go and do those things. And that was your passion. And that was your drive. And that reminds me that when my kids, you know, no matter what they want to do, if they don't want to be hunters, that's totally cool with me. If, if they want to, I'm going to show them the entire world. But if they want to be ballerinas or dancers or singers or piano players, I'm going to do whatever it takes for them to live their dream because I had my chance to live my dream and I'm living it. And I learned that it's important, you know, whatever your kids want to do, you've got to give them that chance. Amen to that. Very cool. Yes, for, for sure. Well, now I saw, I, I remember a particular post on Instagram that you, you had a, I, I believe it was Bowhunter magazine or it was something, there was someone pretty special in your life who had, had, bought you, uh, you, because you talked about getting into archery, um, you had bought you a subscription to a magazine, and I I, I apologize, I don't remember, it's been a while back, but you said it was a pretty pivotal part of your life as well. That was my grandmother. So my grandmother's name was Georgina. Um, She just passed away a year ago at 101. Wow. She lived a a great life, and just my favorite human being on earth. Um, So... I had a unique childhood in a way. It's not that I had a bad childhood, but my parents moved away from home to a seasonal national park in Waterton National Park, and they started a candy store. And I moved with them. I was I was 10 years old when they first moved there and started the seasonal candy store. So the structure of our of my life would have been 
going to school where I grew up with my friend Shane Hunter for part of the year. And then for the summer months, when all the tourists came to the national park, we would be out there and I would go, I would finish my school year at a different school. Well, I went to that school for three days when I was maybe 11 or 12. And it was a a huge school. I think 2,200 kids went to that school and I just, it wasn't my thing. I missed my friends at home and I literally, I've kind of always been very stubborn and kind of blazed my own trail and really not been told what to do, even when I was 11 or 12, which is kind of crazy. I probably wasn't a good kid in that way or in that <laughs> sense, but I, I demanded that I move back home because I wanted to be closer to my friend Shane. I wanted to be closer to hunting. But when I moved home, the only person living in our family house was my older brother who was 20 years old and he was being a 20 year old. He was chasing girls. He was buying fancy trucks. He was working hard on the oil rigs. He wasn't a, like a parental figure but I wanted to be home. So my grandmother, she felt bad. She didn't want me home by myself at 12 years old. She would come out and stay with me two or three days a week and make sure that I had lunches to go to school and made sure I was doing my homework and everything. But at the time she was 75 years old and like a lady's lady, she always had a perm. She was always dressed really nice. You know, just a beautiful lady that didn't belong in the woods. <laughs> and she never came from hunting background. And every afternoon I'm out there shooting my bow in the yard, flinging arrows. And she'd come out and sit with me and read her book while I was shooting. And I would tell her about how badly I wanted to be a bow hunter. But in Saskatchewan, when you go bow hunting, you have to have a guardian with you when you're under 18. You can't go and just sit in a tree stand or a blind by yourself. You need a parent or guardian. Really? So I'm voicing my frustrations to her for probably about two weeks this one fall. And finally she says, well, she called me ducks. She said, well, ducks, if you get me some camouflage or whatever you wear and a camel hat or something, I'll come with you and we can go hike down into the pasture and I'll sit with you while you bow hunt, if that helps you out. Wow. And of course I go, I, I borrow a, an old mossy oak coat or something that I got from my buddy Shane and I got a, a big buck magazine hat and I put it on her and I wrecked her firm <laughs> and like, I, I take That's this lady awesome. and her fancy black flaps down into the down into the backwoods and sit in a blind and one night we're sitting there it was probably the second or third night she came with me we're laying on our backs and i'm still young like i'm 12 years old i wanted to play the cloud game so we're laying on our backs two hours before sunset looking up at the sky telling each other what we thought the cloud the different clouds looked like floating by and while we're doing this we're talking pretty loud to be hunting and i hear a white tail snort and I poked my head up out of the blind and there's three little white tail bucks within 40 yards of our blind. One was like eight yards rubbing his antlers. One was at 25 and one was at 42. And I looked down at my grandma and I just say, don't move or I'll kill you. Don't scare these deer. Just freeze in your shoes. I'm going to shoot a buck. And she's like, okay. And I, I draw my little bow back and there's a deer. I think he was nine yards. He was really close rubbing his antlers, rubbing his velvet off. And I pull my bow back and I rise up to my feet. I never aimed. I probably did what everybody does the very first time they shoot an animal with their bow. I just pulled back, never even found my anchor, never aimed, never remember seeing my pins. I just looked at that buck out of the corner of my eye and he was like somewhere in front of me and I let that arrow fly. And I probably hit 12 feet to the right or I don't know where my arrow went. I never found it. But that deer takes off running and the other deer 25 yards takes off running. And then there's one at 42 yards still rubbing his antlers. He didn't even see the other two spook. I reach back down. I knock another arrow. I pull back. And this time I remember, I'm like, holy smokes, it's pretty embarrassing when you don't aim. Right. 
I pull back, I stand back up 42 yards with a 40 pound boat. I air one out and I 12 ring this little buck and he runs over the hill and disappears. I wait, I get my grandmother out of the grass and I'm hugging her and freaking out. And now I'm telling her, I'm going to show her how to, how to blood trail a deer. And I'm following the blood trail and she just walked up to the top of the hill and she finds this deer in 10 seconds. It takes me <laughs> two minutes to blood track him. I didn't even know she was with me anymore. I come around the corner and she's standing over my, my deer crying. Wow. And I walk up to the buck and I'm like, I'm crying because I'm so excited. I just killed my very first deer with a bow living out my wildest dreams. And I'm going to telling her how I'm going to life size it. And I'm like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And I, I, I realize, I look at her and I realize she's crying too, but she's not crying because I got my first deer. She's crying because she, hunting isn't her thing. You know, she's never seen something get shot with a bow and arrow and she felt bad for the deer. But thinking back on that day, it made me realize how selfless she was and how her generosity taking me out there and letting me live that is, it's just something so many kids don't get that chance. And that lady, she took me hunting until I was 16 years old. It wasn't her thing. She was there for me. She sat with me. She would drive, like she'd drive me 10 miles from home. She'd hike two miles back into the back country with me, sit in blinds, get eaten by mosquitoes. And when I was about 14 years old, my parents got the mail or she got the mail for me, but the mail came home and there's a magazine called Bowhunter and it had my name on it. And I had a somewhere, a subscription from Bowhunter magazine came to my house and I read that magazine. That was my Bible. I loved it. And here my grandmother surprised me for my birthday. She went and got me a subscription to Bowhunter magazine. And I got that subscription every month since. And I don't know, just somewhere in the back of my mind, right from when I was a kid, I thought, you know what? It would be so crazy to be in this magazine one day. And last fall, um, I think the September issue of Bowhunter, I was on the cover. Yes, you were. With a buck that I called Sleepy. Yes, you were. And yeah, and it just so happens that my grandmother passed away last March. So I didn't get to show her, but I'm sure she can see it. Oh, absolutely. You know, I, I remember that yeah. that post. Hearing you tell it, I get chills hearing you tell that story about your grandmother. You know, I had a grandmother that lived with me growing up, as did Jim. Yes. And uh, they were huge figures in our lives. You know, my grandmother in our spiritual life, and she made sure that I got fed when my mom and dad were working. And, and she would go out and, and watch me do things when she didn't want to be out there. But I remember reading, uh, you know, in Instagram, we used to live in this Jim, you know, we live in the social media world, man. And what do we do? You flip through things. You, you know, I don't even know if you look at the social media as, as you call it anymore. I, I try but, not to. If I can but, avoid it. but I remember when I when, when so, it was like it was meant to be, Cody. I was like, get ready to post something, and yours popped up, and I saw that big buck on on. I hadn't even seen the TV show yet. It's popped up on the uh, on the feed, and I stopped. And you had written yep. written a fairly lengthy tribute to your grandmother and it was it was very heartfelt but to hear you tell the story about what kind of cool lady she was you know and everything about that story it is amazing and it's just I, I'm a true believer in people you know that God puts people in your lives you know for a reason and and so many times you don't at the time you're like I don't want that dude in my life you know but <laughs> but there are some times that things just yeah. ha happen um I'm going to have you skip forward a little bit because, um, I mean, you've really had some cool people placed in your life. I mean, there's a guy that's uh, 
pretty famous in his own right that you had a little few dealings with early on, um, Mr. Shockey. And I was just wondering if you maybe tell us how that all came together. It's uh, it's crazy. I, I when I was a teenager, you know, just a few years beyond my grandmother taking me hunting, I was passionate about it. Like I lived hunting every minute of my life. I like if I was sleeping, I was dreaming about it. It's all I wanted to do, and. That's back when Jim Shockey was doing Realtree home videos on the Realtree show of the week. Do you guys remember that when uh, yeah when that's, Shockey would yeah that's back that in the video. day, man. That's that's a long time ago. Yeah, well, I, I you know that's when hunting TV was just coming out for us here in Canada, and that the Realtree TV show was on Realtree Monster Bucks was on every Sunday morning, I believe, and Jim Shockey was my hero. You know, he was my Brett Favre. He was what, you know, most people look up to a sports hero or something. Jim Shockey was that guy for me. A friend of mine and I are hunting this giant buck. He's 190 incher. We're little nose picker kids. We don't even, we don't even know what it takes to kill a giant buck at the time, but we bump into this 190 inch whitetail. I video my little video camera. And at the time I had this dream to have, I don't think it was a TV show at the time. I wanted to produce whitetail and mule deer hunting videos and sell them in magazines, like uh, full page ads in magazines and promote them and then sell them from my house. That was my dream at the time. So Shockey would always come out to Saskatchewan to hunt whitetails each fall, not too far from our place. But I didn't know this at the time. I had no idea that he came and hunted locally. And he, he got uh, some news from some local guy that this kid had videoed a world-class whitetail buck. So he's coming out and he, all he wanted to do I believe was meet this kid and try and get the secret to where this big buck lived. So all of a sudden one day he comes and invites uh, one kid in our community is like second cousins with Jim. And he invited that kid and all of his friends because he knew I was one of the friends, another guy. (laughs) Smart guy. And they invited us on a goose hunt. And I'm like, I I couldn't even talk. I couldn't sleep that night. I I could not believe we're going goose hunting with Jim Shockey and his son, Brandon. So we, we meet Jim at 4.30 in the morning in a, a pea field to set up decoys. And I remember I didn't get to formally meet him. We we're just walking around in the headlights of the truck setting up these decoys. And I remember I was tripping over stuff. I was tripping over decoys because I wasn't looking where I was going. All I was doing was looking at Jim out of the corner of my eye thinking, I can't even imagine this guy is in the flesh standing 25 feet from me right now, walking around, touching the same decoys that I'm touching. I was so thrilled. And at the end of the morning goose hunt, he comes over to me the first time he talked to me. He's like, hey, are you the young fella that videoed that giant whitetail buck? And I, I remember trying to answer him, and I couldn't talk. I, <laughs> I swallowed my tongue. I chilled. I, and I informed him. I finally got it, spit it out, and I told him that, yeah, I had videoed a big whitetail buck. And he's like, oh, what are you doing with the video camera? Like, how can we have a video camera with you? And, you know, that's pretty lucky to get some live footage of a buck that size. And I told him about my hopes to produce my own video and how I was passionate about hunting, but I was also really passionate about capturing my stories on camera. So he asks if I could show him that footage and if I could put it on the VHS tape for him and drop it off at his motel room. So I go home and I'm like, I got to impress this guy. There's no way I can just show him this big white tail buck. Put three hours of other footage. And I'm talking back then, if I videoed a white tail doe walking in low light at 200 yards, I thought it would blow people's minds. So, I put three hours of boring footage on this VHS tape before I put the footage of this giant white tail buck. I didn't label it. I didn't tell him what was on it. I just gave him 
I went to the motel and dropped this tape off. So that poor bugger, he had to fast forward through a whole bunch of crappy, boring, sleepy footage to find this big white tail buck. But at the end of it, I don't know if he liked what he saw in the camera work, but he came back to me and he offered me a job filming him for 30 days of November hunting whitetails around my home turf. What and an I opportunity. Accepted the offer. Yeah, I, I couldn't even believe it. I, what I didn't know at the time was I thought it was a dream come true, but by like hour number two of day one, I realized Jim was the biggest hard ass on the planet and it was not a dream job. <laughs> <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> he's the moodiest, the moodiest, grumpiest, most demanding human being I've ever met in my life when it comes to work. But, but in the long run, he taught me, like it's a long story and I'll get to that, but in the long run, he's the kind of guy, he's like the football coach that gets the absolute best out of you every second that you're out there. He doesn't, he doesn't accept 90%. He doesn't accept 99%. He only accepts 110% of you every minute that you're doing it. So I was lucky. I got to spend seven years with him. We sat in that whitetail blind and we hunted that whitetail buck that I filmed. He, he kind of, he used me to find out where that buck lived. He went oh, and asked of course he did, Cody. Of, of course he did. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, and I, I was willing to tell him everything. I, I was willing to give him the key to the city because I was hanging out with Jim Shockey. So absolutely. I was, I was revved. All the locals were so mad at me because I you know, sold out our little secret spots to show Jim where the big deer lived. But I got to sit in a blind shoulder to shoulder with Jim Shockey for 30 days. And it was, it was honestly the ride of my life. And the next seven years was the ride of my life. It, in that blind... He explained to me, this was in 2001, he explained to me that his vision was to start a hunting TV show and air it on the Outdoor Channel, which was just starting to get big in the United States. And that was his focus, the audience that he wanted to get in front of. And he just wanted to use the footage that him and I captured that fall to start creating you know, stories towards his TV show he wanted to start. In January that year, after he'd gone home, he calls me. And I knew this was leading towards possibly a full-time job. He calls me and he says, how are you with computers? I lied through my teeth. I actually, <laughs> in brackets, I failed computer class in grade 11 with a 47. <laughs> and in grade 12, I never even showed up. I never even went because I thought there was no point. And that was the last time I touched a computer. Jim calls me in January and says, how are you with computers? And I lie and I say, oh, I'm I'm a computer. What is I kick ass with computers? He's like, okay, would you be interested in me hiring you full time to be my cameraman editor? And you and I will start this TV show and you will produce it for me. I'm like, absolutely. Let's do it. This is like a dream come true for me. I'm in. He's like, well, do you want to talk about pay? And I'm like, no, I don't give a hoot what the pay is. I want to do it. I'm in no matter what. He's like, perfect. I'm going to send my complete library of footage out to you by courier. It'll be there in two days. So give me your address. And I'm also going to buy the fanciest edit suite money can buy. And it's going to be at your house within a week. I hang up the phone. I literally, I'm like 19 or 20 years old. I literally start crying to my parents. I'm like, I just lied to my childhood hero. Like I, I don't have a clue how to turn a computer on. I know nothing about editing. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And this guy's relying on me to start his TV show. Like I'm going to let him down. And I remember my dad, my dad looked at me and said, how bad do you want this? I'm like, well, like nothing else, nothing else in the entire world. Like it's, it's all I want in life. He's like, then figure it out. Get the, wait till the computer comes. Don't call him back. Don't tell him you're lying, but don't let him down. Just 
dig deep and find a way and learn and read and figure it out. So I did. And it was only a few months later. And I sent away my first three television episodes that I edited to the outdoor channel and they passed all of the regulations and guidelines. And I was away to the races and I was Jim Shockey's cameraman and editor. Unbelievable. I mean, you stepped up to the plate and I, and I will tell you that the, the interesting thing is I had no idea that, uh, that part of the story, uh, I didn't realize you edited, uh, Jim Shockey's hunting adventures back in the day. I, was that the original name of the show, by the way? Jim Shockey's hunting adventures. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you, uh, you edited the first three, I mean, the show literally was on for 20 years or 18, 20, whatever years. And you were the original editor of that show. I mean, you did some groundbreaking stuff there, man. It was different. Well, I, I, I appreciate it. He, Jim told me his vision. He wanted, he did not want a cutaway type show. He did not want a B-roll type show. He wanted, you know, uh, a point of view that was right over the hunter's shoulder that was as real as it could get and yep. raw Yep. and just real hunters moments that made the viewer feel like they were there on the hunt with you. And that he didn't want them to ever feel like, Oh man, that was fake. That was shot the next day. He wanted them to feel the same adrenaline that you felt in those moments. And then he literally walked away and said, figure it out. And I remember sitting in that edit suite, like I'd never produced a, a hunting television show. I didn't know anything. I wasn't educated. I didn't know about, you know, like the, the guidelines or the recipe, you know, for commercial breaks, for billboards, where billboards needed to be. So he gave me um, templates. He gave me television show examples. There was, I don't even remember which ones they were, but there was two or three television episodes that he had on VHS tape. And he said, watch them, see how they're organized. See how, like, if there's a teaser at the start, notice that there's, a montage to get you excited that represents the show and then you know make notes of where the content lies and where the commercial breaks lie and then figure it out and i i designed the first episode of jim shockey's hunting adventures and then i edited it jim and i did it together i think for three or four years just ourselves and then he started he started growing where he was he hired more editors i actually was less of an editor by year four and i was more of a character on the show where he had me guiding and had cameramen with me and then I was training cameramen while I was while I was out guiding for him and young cameramen would tell young I guess some of them were actually older than me at the time but I was helping on the production side where I would I would be the character on the show but I would also be you know training people in the field as well wow I mean you had a true hunting baptism by fire or a hunt, hunting production baptism by fire I mean you were just thrust into it and I like what your dad said, figure it out. I mean, that's what I would tell my son. You know, you got yourself into this and you really want to do it. You, you got to figure it out. And, and uh, that's pretty admirable. And then you've got to pat yourself on the back a little bit. I mean, I, I know you've moved on and the Outdoor Channel grew. Uh, Jim Shockey grew. He became world famous, literally. Jim Shockey, Shockey's Hunting Adventures, you know, was probably for years one of the, the most popular shows on the network. I think that's that's pretty cool that you were on the foundation of that. I really got to know. I mean, there had to be a moment of separation there sometimes. I mean, you're still a fairly young guy, and you now have a show that's one of the most popular on the network. What was that pivotal moment, or what made that happen to where you were able to make that jump to, to go out and do it on your own? Jim and I, um, our relationship, it, it like 
I would never compare myself to Jim. He's world famous and he's going to go down in history. And I, now that I don't work for him again, you know, he, I thought of him when I worked for him as the grumpy old school teacher that everybody, (laughs) you know, grumped about behind his back. Once I, once I wasn't working for him, he was absolutely my hero again. It, like it's so admirable, admirable what he's accomplished in his life, and it's just untouchable with anyone. So, I, but it maybe felt like you know we were two dominant bucks. I'm not. If he ever heard this, he'd be like, "Cody, I'm a seven by six, and you're like a little call box three by six. <laughs> <laughs> he would make some stupid joke. Yeah. But we, it was like we were two dominant bucks trapped in a little Texas feeding area at once i wanted to be in front of the camera you know every day i wanted to be out kind of blazing my own trail and i i just didn't want to be his cameraman and i was still his cameraman part-time and i got to guide part-time but there was a lot of times where he would pull me back from moose guiding in the yukon and instead of guiding for two months and making extra tips myself and having a cameraman with me and producing stories where i was in front of the camera and i was growing my character on a show he was going back to saying, nope, Cody, you're coming with me. You're my cameraman for two months. And we just locked horns a lot. Mm-hmm. And I remember one pivotal moment. It, it was my dream. It was my dream of having those hunting videos when I was a teenager turned into me wanting to have my own TV show. And I knew it was becoming evident with Jim that he was only going to let me get so big or have so much of a role but I still had, I had no doubt in my mind that I was going to be with him and a part of his team for the rest of my life. Like I, I loved where I was. I loved what we were doing. But I remember one day, one of his head guides, a guy that he really, really, really appreciated and was close with. He jumped in the truck with me one day and he was giggling. And he's like, you would not believe what Jim just said to me. I'm like, well, you got to tell me you can't. You can't say that and then not tell me what the heck he said. He's like, that Cody should have his own TV show and absolutely crush and annihilate it. And he doesn't even know it. And, you know, he's so unorganized and he's so (laughs) young and so out to lunch on so many things. He has no idea the potential he has. And, And it's probably a good thing because I'd probably lose him and he would go do his own thing or whatever. But. And I remember sitting in the passenger seat of that truck for about two hours thinking, holy crap, like Jim didn't give you compliments in person. He, he would watch footage. I remember driving from one hunt to the next. He was a big driver, if he, like other than off continent. But if he could drive to one camp and 36 hours and get there instead of flying, he would. He loved to have his truck there. He loved to be able to get from one spot to the next and not be sitting around waiting to change flights or whatever. And I remember driving with him and we would get done filming a hunt and he would want to sh- want me to show him the footage. And I would show him a clip, you know, that I was so thrilled about. One that stands out is a clip that was on his show. It was on the intro montage of his show and it probably will stand famous in Jim Chalky's Hunting Adventures. We took Frank Licklider, the PGA golfer, hunting. I was the cameraman, Jim was the guide. And we were walking on a grass plot, an estuary on Vancouver Island, and we came around the corner and a black bear was walking towards us down a bear trail. And that bear walked right up three feet from the barrel of Frank Licklider's muzzle loader. And it noticed Frank's head sticking up over a log and it stood up on his hind legs and like towered over us at like three feet. Like if, if, 
if he would have shot that bear with that gun, it would have burnt all the hair right off his body. He would have been bald. <laughs> so close. But I remember thinking in that moment, I remembered Jim taught me to separate myself as a cameraman. You couldn't be, you couldn't be caught up with adrenaline in exciting hunting moments. You had to be thinking of your camera work, your framing. You just couldn't be a hunter in those moments. You had to be a cameraman and you had to capture the most exciting scenes that people wanted to see. And I remember thinking in that moment when that bear stood up, I remember just smiling to myself thinking, I am freaking crushing it. Like this, <laughs> this clip was going to go down in history. Like whether it eats us or what, this, this clip was insane. It's the most badass thing I've ever captured. And I remember going back to the boat and Jim and, and Frank and everyone were all high-fiving and were giddy because of the moment we just lived. We didn't shoot the bear, but it was just such an exciting scene. And Jim's like, yeah, play the footage for it. Play it, play it, play it. I rewind the tape. I set it on the boat and they watch it. And Jim looks at me and says, what the hell was that? And I'm like, and like, this is three hunting buddies that are just high on life right now. And now he's cornering me. And he's like, what the hell was that? And I'm like, what the hell was what? He's like, you blew that clip. That clip totally sucked. And I'm like, what? You gotta be freaking kidding me. He's like, you didn't have me in the frame. Where's my cowboy hat? Where's my neckerchief? Why didn't you have me in the frame? I'm like, if I panned back enough or leaned over enough to get you in the frame, I would have wrecked the shot. The shot was the corner of Frank's head and the bear. And he lectured me and told me that I blew the shot and the shot sucked. And like, I, I just owned that. I wanted to like draw my gloves like a hockey player and fight Jim on the spot. <laughs> that had probably been a bad move, no by the way. <laughs> I mean, I know you're a tough guy, oh, yeah. but he's a little bigger than you are, Cody. <laughs> oh, he would, he would have crushed me like a smeared little bug. But I remember him never dishing out compliments. You know, if, if, if I was a wide receiver in football and I ran six guys wide and got a touchdown, it would never have high-fived you and said, dude, you got wheels, you rock. He would have been like, man, I don't know why you wouldn't have gone up the middle and got the touchdown two seconds quicker to keep some time on the clock. Like, he's, he was just wow. that guy. He wanted more of you no matter what. Well, I think his his compliment, though, was the fact that that and I, I've watched that clip 8,000 times watching his shows. The compliment was the fact that forever that show that has been on the opening montage of his show. So I guess you didn't suck too bad, Cody. No, I know. But he 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 would never give you a compliment to your face. But then you jump in the truck on one of those long drives going somewhere and he would call someone up like Greg Ritz from Thompson center. And he would say, Greg, you absolutely wouldn't believe the clip we captured in bear camp with Frank Licklider. It's the craziest, most awesome clip you've ever seen in your life. So I'd be sitting there thinking, why in the hell can't he say that to me? <laughs> but, but he's telling, he's telling the world that it's incredible. You know, hindsight, looking back, he, he just wanted the best. He wanted you the next time a bear stood up in front of you at three feet. He wanted you to make it better. He never wanted you to be satisfied. But, but getting back to where we were going with the separation, you know, I, I heard that, that gentleman that worked for him say that to me that, you know, Jim just said that I could have my own TV show and it would rock and I would do incredible. And it gave me confidence. And it, the one thing Jim was doing at the time, he was branching out and he was hunting in every corner of the earth. He was hunting overgrown rodents in South America. He, he was trying to win the Weatherby Award. He was trying to cover over 300 species around the planet. And my passion and my drive was giant mule deer, giant whitetails, elk, 
bighorn sheep and he'd already lived those chapters in his life and I just felt like at the time that I had to follow my dream and branch out and start my own show and I did so in March of 2008 I quit working for Jim and I remember again I was 27 years old I remember crying like a little 12 year old child thinking to myself why would I walk away from the greatest TV show on the planet? Like it will probably go down as one of the most followed hunting productions of all time. True. And I, and I was a part of it and I had a huge role and I literally walked away from it. And I, I remember being just so afraid of the future and, you know, if, if I failed and if, you know, it essentially could have been the biggest mistake of my life. And I, maybe it's that fear that drove me, to just not accept failing and to push. And I, I started Live to Hunt. The first year that I started Live to Hunt, I took a girl named Kelsey Claypool hunting, who turned out to be my wife. I fell madly in love with her when I took her hunting. And she became my sidekick the first year on the show. She was just my girlfriend. But then later on, we got engaged and started a family. And so we started Live to Hunt in 2008. And for a few years, the Jim and Cody relationship was hibernating. There, there wasn't a whole bunch of contact. I don't think Jim appreciated that I left. You know, he, he taught me so much. He did so much for me. He opened so many doors for me. And then I became his competition. So I understand that. And I get that. But then three years later, he called me up and asked me what my plans were for my show. And he told me that he was willing to help me get my show on the Outdoor Channel. And that was in 2011. And he opened a lot of doors for me again and became his marketing staff, took over kind of as an agent for my show and got me on the outdoor channel and opened doors for me there that I never could open myself. I, I tried getting on the outdoor channel in 2009 and 2010 with our TV show. And before I signed a contract with outdoor channel, I needed to know that I had sponsors backing me in order to take that leap. And th there was no way I couldn't sign one single sponsor in the United States. Just so many people were starting TV shows and I just couldn't get anyone's attention. And it's funny, Jim, I signed on with Jim's marketing team. And within a few months, they had a huge family of sponsors sign on with the Live to Hunt show. And I still have a whole bunch of those, probably 80% of those sponsors I still have with me now. And once again, Jim opened so many doors for me and gave me opportunities that so many people dream about. And he, he helped me. And I, I was very, very lucky. So many times in my life, I've been, you know, just had golden tickets handed to me or opportunities handed to me that so many people don't get. So I was lucky. Yeah. I mean, I, I listened to that, that story and, and I do, I, I listen and think about Jim, you know, and his persona when you see him on TV. And I, I always wondered, was he that the football coach type? And I, and I, I think he, he probably, probably is. I mean, and I think that he was grooming you this whole time. And I, I, I just think it's amazing that you've been able to, to take your show to the, to the next level. You know, you, you mentioned hockey, <laughs> Jim and I are laughing at each other. Uh, you and I, you and I actually have a mutual friend, don't we? Uh, uh, some obscure hockey coach guy. I don't know. Uh, Babcock, somebody. Mr. Mike Babcock. And you know what, Jim, I, I, you know, I've never been coached by Mike in hockey because I'm not a good enough hockey player, but I, I, think of Mr. Babcock and his his way of coaching you know people call him old school people call him hard-nosed that's how Jim Shockey was and you know what 
as much in the moment, in that moment, whether you're being coached by a coach like that, or whether you're being told what to do by Mr. Shockey, when you want to be the best guide out there, or you want to be the best cameraman out there or the best editor out there, they get the most out of you. And I would never be where I am today if it wasn't for Jim giving me the school of hard knocks and not being my friend at times and literally grinding me into the ground like a fence post and demanding nothing but 110% every day, every night, just as a lifestyle, 110%. And I literally, I literally would not be where I am today. I would not have what I have today if I wasn't taught that. And I'm, as much as it sucks in the moment and as much as a guy like that makes you feel crappy in certain moments, in the long run, you thank him. Like, I'm so thankful for the lessons that Jim taught me and the work ethic that he taught me. People don't get ahead in this world if they aren't willing to grind. And that's Mr. Babcock. I admire the heck out of him. He's a cool guy. He, he's a hardcore hunter. And, you know, with his, with his hockey and having to coach so much, he doesn't get much of a chance to go hunting. And I like him and I, he reaches out to me once or twice a year and just says, Hey, I'm going mule deer hunting. How can I, how can I prepare and how can I be ready to succeed and make sure I succeed when I get two days to hunt because then I have to go back coaching. I think that's so awesome. I'm so grateful for the chance, you know, to throw him a little bit of advice here and there because he's, he's a cool dude and I hope to one day be able to hunt with him. Yeah, he's a good dude. I, you know, I, I, t- I take care of a farm here that he has that we hunt whitetails on. He's as intense when you're when you're planting a food plot or you're hinge cutting trees or setting a ground blind. I mean, he he wants things done done right and efficiently. It's funny too. He he calls me every now and then. He lives on a little lake and always wanting some bass fishing advice. But that's uh, funny. You know, as 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 hardcore as he is, he also knows that uh, there's certain things that other people know a little bit more about than he does and he reaches out to you and I when it comes to that so <laughs> hey that gives that gives me a little bit of makes me feel good sometimes when he when he does that but um <laughs> Cody all, all, sure. all, all kidding aside you know uh, I'm a fan uh Jim's a fan we've absolutely we've, we've watched your this show uh, you and Kelsey grow we've watched you raise this family partially on television I feel like I know you um I'm hoping that someday we actually get to go hunting together but uh I implore everybody that's listening to this right now, find maybe you can give them a hint how they can watch it. But but there there's a show about a special buck, and and I you know verbalizing it wouldn't be enough. But um, a buck called Sleepy that you pursued for what was it five years? Is that correct? Yes, sir. And uh, I, I, it was one of the most amazing shows I've ever seen. You can maybe just give me just a little bit on it and tell people you know how they could they could maybe see that episode or follow that story. Uh, of, of your journey to kill that monster mule deer called Sleepy? Like a lot of people that are passionate about hunting big bucks, that's it's what I crave. I, I can't get enough of finding a buck, focusing on him, and attacking that challenge. You know, he can be nocturnal as heck, and I, I just love the chance to try and figure out what a big buck does and what it takes to get inside his bubble and get a shot at him. And it, and sleepy will absolutely be the greatest big buck challenge that I've ever lived and ever will live. It'll, it will never be touched. It, it's a deer that live close to home here in Saskatchewan. He lived on public land. He was a giant, non-typical mule deer buck. The first year that we bumped into him, he was a young buck. He didn't have a name 
my wife was drawn the day before we found this deer the first time. I got her onto a Boone and Crockett typical mule deer. I snuck her up to this buck. I got her on the shooting sticks and I told her to shoot it. She, when she had a broadside shot, while I was breathing down her neck, screaming at her to shoot or begging her, baby talking her, trying to get her to shoot, she doesn't take the opportunity to shoot it, yet she turns around and looks at me in the eyes in the heat of the moment and says, I don't think he's big enough. And I, <laughs> I knew what I was looking at, and I knew I was looking at like a, a deer with 20-inch G2s, a giant frame. It turns out I found his antlers. He was a Boone and Crockett typical. We've been home that night, and I'm arguing with her. I'm like, listen, Kels, girl, babe, I love the crap out of you. But I'm telling you in like a baby voice, I'm baby talking you, whimpering like a puppy dog, begging you to shoot. Don't question how big it is. It's obviously going to be big enough. You just make it happen. She, in turn, looks at me and says, listen, I'm out there. I want to enjoy my hunt, and I want to be just as involved as you and I want to be excited to shoot. And I want the buck to blow my mind too. I don't just want to shoot it because you say it's big. I want the adrenaline of knowing it's big. So maybe I want to wait for another buck in another situation where I feel how big he is and I'm revved up. I'm not just going by your word. And I want to live that excitement. So I want you to be quiet the next time we sneak up on a buck. And I want to do it myself. <laughs> I love that. So I'm like, fine. That's totally cool. I'll give you air. You can do whatever you want. I'll just be your cameraman and I'll zip my lips. So the next day we sneak up on this buck with a hot doe. They're partnered up. This buck prances up on a hill at 80 yards. He's heavy. He's got character. He's got sticker points. He's absolutely a shooter. She's on the shooting sticks. She looks back at me and says, what do you think? And I said, I have no opinion. (laughs) That's just the mule deer buck with a doe. And it's totally up to you. If you want to shoot him, shoot him. I got the camera on record. You do you. She's like, I don't know. I don't know. He looks good. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I don't know. It's up to you, babe. The deer turns and trots away. She doesn't shoot. The buck gets to 400 yards. She's like, I want to shoot him now. And I'm like, it's way too late. You blew it. (laughs) You had your chance. It's all over. That ship has sailed. It turns out that buck was a four-year-old deer with incredible potential. We didn't see him again that year. We found him the next year in September. Now he's a 220-inch super monster, Mm. six-inch bases, junk out the side, a 205-inch typical frame, a world-class deer. My cameraman and I sneak up on him. We get 80 yards away. He trots out into an alfalfa hayfield just before sunset. He lays down. He beds down in the sunshine, falls sound asleep, lays flat out on the ground, sound asleep, eyes closed, snoring like an old fat basset hound dog. <laughs> I could have I could have ran up in that moment. I could have jogged up to him and shot him sound asleep playing in that alfalfa field, but there was a little spiker buck that was his wingman standing 20 yards away browsing, so I couldn't I couldn't do that. We decided to call that deer Sleepy that evening. That's where the name comes from. That buck. Yes, sir. Sound asleep. Legs in the air like a bloated old cow that died in the sunshine. And We gave him that name. It turns out we hunted that buck over the next four years. I lived my entire hunting life for four years with that deer. I missed him every single year with my bow and arrow. I consider myself a good bow hunter, but that deer got in my head. He stole my confidence. I was so in love with him. I I couldn't, I couldn't walk away from him. I lived my springs. I looked for his antlers until I found them. My summers, I watched him grow in velvet and just 
crave the chance to go and sneak up on him with my bow and arrow. And then every fall, I would sneak up on him. I would get a chance. I would miss or I, he would wind us. And then he would vanish. He would just go underground. And he lived on public land. And then the whole circle would start again. He would shed his antlers in the spring. I would find them or try as hard as I could to find them. I found a collection of five different antlers off of them, three of them over 100 inches, just one side. Wow. The largest shed antler I found off of them was 122 inches, just one side. And then in 2019, on October the 3rd, after hunting him for, you know, 20 and 30 days straight, every single year, as hard as I could, we got him. And I, I walked up to him, held him for the very first time, and it was the the greatest hunting moment I will ever live. It will never be touched. And it's crazy because I, I shot what was the pending world record archery mule deer in 2011 a deer that scored 294 inches in full velvet so you know that's a that's a deer of an everyone's absolute lifetimes it, it was broken there's now i think two bucks bigger than him all time non-typical pope and young but that was a giant deer that you think you would never top and the story that i lived with the buck we call sleepy is something i will i know that i will never live again it was it was crazy. My, my cameraman and I were getting matching tattoos. We still haven't got it yet. We're still trying to design the perfect tattoo just to represent the four years that we lived with that buck. Yeah, I've never had anything happen to me that would make me want to get a tattoo to match Jim's, <laughs> I can tell you right now. But uh, I, that story. I don't have any tattoos. I'm not a tattoo guy, but. Uh, that's but funny. Special. But that story, uh, that the show, the the whole thing, and to hear you tell it again, it just, like I said, gives me gives me chills. The emotion. Uh, to me, hunting comes down, whether it's fishing, outdoor TV in general, it, it, it's it's about having a good time. It's about telling a story. and But it's very rarely that you can, can put your heart into the story. I mean, we do a lot of shows. We hunt a lot of things, both you and I do. But the emotion that I saw in that, I mean, it, you, you know, it made me reach out to you and, and just make, pat you on the back. I mean, it was just like, it really meant something to get to watch that. And and if anybody's out there listening to this thing and they're going, I, you know, I got to watch this thing, this this show or this story, is there a place where they can go now and, and see the story of Sleepy? We have it on Vimeo. So you can purchase it and download it permanently, or you can rent it. And it's on, um, it's called the sleepy story and it's on Vimeo. I'm so proud of that story. And that kind of, it's a documentary, I guess, documented story. I've had some people say to me since they've seen it, a, a lot of people love it. There's people, you know, it's three different times in that story. I cry like a baby and I've had so many redneck guys reach out to me and say, dude, I love the story, but there's, there's no room for crying in hunting. <laughs> Unbelievable. I, yeah. I, I just feel like they just weren't in that moment. They don't have no idea what that four years felt like. And I think once you watch the show or that story and you go along and live the moments that we lived with that buck and you realize how important he was to us, you get that it was, there were so many moments in that journey that were just so raw and so real. Unbelievable. Well, I will tell you, Cody, 
I will disagree with every dude that would ever or lady that would ever say that to you. To me, the, the passion uh, it shows it shows you're real, and it shows how much not only your passion you had for that animal, but for the sport. If you can't laugh and cry a little bit about the sport that we love so much, uh, then we've got a real problem. Dudes need to check their ego at the door when they hit the woods. You know what I mean? And in, in, in my opinion, and uh, I've been told I get a little too, little get a little too excited sometimes when I take an animal, but you know, when you've pursued a, a mountain goat for 13 days, you know, and living in a Creek and you take him, sometimes you're going to be a little bit excited. So, I mean, there's always going to be, be people throw rocks, but I want to tell you something, brother, I would never throw any at you. You and Kelsey have done a wonderful job. Uh, you've got a beautiful family as well. And, um, if people are not watching live to hunt with Cody and Kelsey, they need to need to do it. I can't thank you enough for your time and for this, for your story. Uh, I feel like I, I feel like I know you now, man. And, uh, I think all of our listeners are going to feel the same way. Don't stop what you're doing, buddy. Keep on doing it. Absolutely. You know, you're doing a great job and, uh, and just keep, keep your head in the game, man. And I can't wait to see what you produce next. Joe, I appreciate you, brother. And I appreciate the chance. I, I really want to go hunting with you someday. That's one of my favorite things is going hunting with other people, that are passionate about what we all love. And I, I would just love to share camp with you sometime and go go and sneak up on some critters. It would be so fun. You got it, buddy. Well, have a great day. And uh, and like I said, uh, we're going to get in hunting camp sometime, I promise you. Absolutely. Let's do it. All the best to both of you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cody. We really appreciate it, buddy. Joe, I got to cut the grass. It's growing about a foot and a half every single day. I think at this point, I could probably just hay bale it. What do you think? Well, I can tell you, Jim, it is May. It's Southern Ohio. It's been like that since we were kids, yeah, and it's right. not changing. That's right. We get rain about every three days, and you can watch it growing. Uh, but the grass, everybody thinks about cutting your grass, but there's a lot of – everything is growing right now. I mean, literally yesterday, in my driveway, I had a trimmer, a steel electric trimmer. I had my, my chainsaw pruner. I had my uh, leaf blower. You name it. I had steel stuff. My yeah. driveway was orange, man. But this is that time of year. It's the steel time of year. And listen, we know a lot of folks want to get their hands on steel gear. Absolutely. And for obvious reasons. But there is a little tiny problem. You know, as everything starts to open back up and we emerge from all the craziness we've had over the course of the last year, there's this thing. I am not going to claim to understand it. But it's called the global supply chain. That's right. All right. So right now, everybody's working hard to get as as much stuff in as they can. They're working 24-7 at Steel's headquarters, which we've both been to. Yeah. In Virginia Beach, extremely cool place, great people. And they are literally working around the clock to get products into people's hands. And that's, uh, that's something that just requires right now patience got to be patient well think about this steel is the number one brand worldwide by far but you know what they also do is they deliver and there will be nobody that fills that supply chain faster and we've got the dealer network out there all we ask is hey folks just have a little bit of patience and that steel equipment will be on the shelves the back orders will be filled and you'll be trimming you'll have your driveway orange just like mine <laughs> that's right Check out SteelUSA.com for more details. Thanks for listening to Steel's Real Life with Joe Thomas. Steel's Real Life is a presentation of Real Outdoors TV. All rights reserved.